if I can speak <clears throat> broadly, I believe that there are two types of stories that we as Americans love more than any others. Uh, stories of unlikely and profound success and stories of catastrophic failure. It's like we're at the same time desperate to put people up on pedestals to remind us of what's possible and jealous enough to delight when they come crashing down because they weren't really better than us. This conflicting man-centeredness. But if it's your hero, if it's your friend, if it's your pastor, then when the reality of sin comes crashing in, it's, it's painful. There's no rejoicing on that day. There's only grief. There's mourning. And that's proper when we see the devastating effects of sin ruin another life, another family, or another church. As we've moved through the story of Genesis, we've seen Noah as a new Adam on a new earth. And now we're going to see Noah engaged in the same task of gardening uh, that Adam had been assigned by God. Amazingly, every time that we've seen Noah so far, more chapters dedicated to uh, stories in which Noah is a character than probably anything else, Every time that we've seen Noah so far, his life has been exemplary. What can you ask more than God speaks and Noah obeys, right? And that's just the pattern that he continues to follow. Perhaps Noah is a hero worth keeping on a pedestal. Well, today we're going to see that like Adam, like everyone else and like us, everyone other than our Lord Jesus Christ, Noah is also like Adam, susceptible to sin. We're in Genesis chapter 9 this morning. Genesis chapter 9, read verses 18 to 29. So please take your copy of God's Word. If you weren't already there, uh, you can follow along as I read. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. What a story. <laughs> Let's work kind of point by point through this. First, we, we begin kind of the, the transition of 18 and 19. We'll address a little bit more into next week, Lord willing. But when we get into the heart of this story, verse 20, we see Noah's drunken shame. Right there at the face, verses 20 and 21. Now, it's possible, but it's not likely that Noah was the first human to grow and harvest grapes, although this phrase could be translated that way. But I don't think that's the case. Uh, Perhaps he was actually returning to his pre-ark building career. Who knows, right? We don't know what he was doing. He did something for hundreds of years uh, before God said, stop what you're doing, build an ark. Uh, Maybe he was a vineyard grower. We really just don't know. There's an Ethiopian legend that around 850 AD, Kaldi, the goat herder, noticed his goats behaving very strangely. They were jumping or dancing around very energetically, and they were struggling to sleep at night. And it was all after they ate berries from a certain tree. And so he gathered some of the berries, and he shared them with an abbot from a local monastery. 
And I think all that monks do is figure out things to drink. So he concocted a drink from these berries, and then he and his fellow monks were now able to stay awake late into the night for prayer. Supposedly, this is the origin story for coffee. A gloriously accidental discovery immediately put to use for the glory of God. And, uh, I think Samiko sent a, a meme to me of one time about uh, coffee arrived in Europe in 1517 or something, that immediately the Protestant Reformation. Who knows? <laughs> coffee and the gospel. I mean, wow. Praise God. So is this account in Genesis 9 the accidental origin story for alcohol and wine? Is that, that what we're reading here? Again, perhaps, I don't, I don't think so. It could be. I would tend to give the long generations of pre-flood humanity more discovery credit than that. Uh, whether or not Noah discovered, was the first to discover alcohol, he did discover firsthand, as did his family, the effects that can come from enjoying God's good gifts to excess and thus abusing God's good gifts. Reminded of what Paul said to Timothy, by all of God's gifts are good and to be enjoyed with thanksgiving for his glory. And I would say that what that means, that with thanksgiving and for his glory, would mean that all of God's good gifts are good when they are used in balance and within God's boundaries. Right? Food, drink, sex, work, rest, right? All things from God, a gift used in balance and within God's boundaries. I think an honest reading of Scripture really must include alcohol as one of God's good gifts. We move through, we see that. It's a sign of blessing to the people of Israel, moving into the promised land. It was included in the offerings given to the Lord and and in his festivals in the Mosaic Law. So we, we see some goodness of that. Of course, the Bible also equally warns us about excessive drinking because just as all of God's gifts are good, All of God's gifts can be abused, right? And I think there's this yes, but syndrome that we have. And probably we could could have a nice, good division argument about this. Like the yes, but when it comes. Like half of you liked the first thing that I said, but the other half were like, well, yeah, but, right? (laughs) Yeah, but. It's like, well, okay, we don't, that, that's not necessary. It's not an either or. There's a, there's a both and aspect to it, but we need to hear both. So if you like the, it's a good gift, <laughs> praise God. You need to keep listening, okay? Because that's not all that the Bible has to say about alcohol, and it's actually not what this text is doing, right? It can be abused. That's why Solomon warned in Proverbs, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it, is not wise. Uh, The priests weren't to consume alcohol prior to serving in the temple. Kings and rulers are told not to drink as they make decisions, lest it cloud their judgment. Paul instructs us very clearly, do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So let's not get caught in a yes-but loop here. It's not exclusively either-or. It truly can be a both and, but here in this text, the first time that we interact with the idea of alcohol, we have a warning that's embedded in this narrative. Uh, Drunkenness is a sin, and it leads to shameful behavior. And let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. Drunkenness leading to a sinful, shameful behavior is what Noah is guilty of here. We come across an old man with a reputation for faith and obedience, now passed out drunk and naked in his tent. Like, that's the starkness of this story. And even though his nakedness wasn't public, it was still shameful. The text isn't just like, oh, hey, now he just went to his bedroom, took off his clothes, and laid down in his bed, right? There's, there's, it's, it's a known aspect of it. So there's a shamefulness to it, the shamefulness of his nakedness, just like Adam and Eve felt shame in their nakedness back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. In the context of Genesis, I think we're meant to see this as uh, evidence of Noah's own personal fall, the the knocking off of that pedestal that we could have put him on. That maybe he's the one. No, he's not the one. Right? This is a serpent-like behavior. Interestingly, though, this is the only less than positive thing said about Noah, I believe, in the entire Bible. These these few verses. 
but I don't think that this is a prohibition text. Right? No, a prohibitionist, right? Early, what, 20s or so? This is like, we can solve the world's problems as long as we just outlaw alcohol. This is, always works. Just outlaw something and it'll go away. It's not like sinners are okay with breaking laws. <laughs> you regulate sugar and we'll all be healthy. Like, it's just, you don't change from outside, you change from inside. Uh, this is not a prohibition text. I think this is a perseverance text. Perseverance. I don't think, Robbie, that we talked about what I was going to be preaching about. Did you know, I noticed, because I knew what I was talking about, I think every song today encouraged us from God's word of this, this idea of perseverance, enduring to the end, right? Striving toward a goal. That's what perseverance means. It's a consistent, enduring movement toward finishing something and finishing it well. I love starting projects. I love working on projects. Then I love starting another project. <laughs> and then working on that project. Finishing, like, ah, right? But perseverance is finishing well. It not only excludes quitting before the end, it also paints a different picture than barely scraping yourself across the finish line. That's not what perseverance speaks of. And when the Bible talks about our salvation, from our initial conversion to our growth in faith and, and repentance up to our death or to the return of Jesus, whatever the, the end is, it frequently uses words or ideas like endurance or perseverance to describe God's ongoing work in us and our engaging with God's ongoing work in us. Like the oft-quoted Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, right? <laughs> work, because God's working, right? Like push toward the end. Well, how, how do I know I'll have enough strength to get to the end? Because it is God who's pushing and equipping you toward the end. So the perseverance isn't just on you. It's not just this like solo activity, but it's also not like this passivity, right? God, just push me. No, there's this, right, this work together aspect of it, but that's what happens with perseverance. And by way of a doctrinal title, this enduring to the end by God's grace Right? Grace, Holy Spirit, energized activity and continuing in faith and repentance. Uh, we call this the perseverance of the saints. And it is what we would have hoped to see exemplified in Noah, but we don't. Now, he doesn't lose his salvation, right? He's still one who walks with God, but he doesn't finish well. This is like the last thing that we hear about him before he dies, and you can agree, right, that that doesn't end on a high point. How you finish matters. That you finish matters, but how you finish matters. We look at Scripture and see these things. We see Abraham later as an, as an old man, well over 100 years old. He's old when God calls on him to sacrifice his dearly loved son, Isaac, on the mountain, yet by faith Abraham obeys, right? His path is rocky, but as he moves, right, his faith increases over the course of his life. Uh, Joseph, as he is dying, gave instructions regarding his body being taken to the promised land because he died in faith. He's like, this isn't the end of what God has. So his dying wish, his will and testament is like, when God takes you out of this land, take me with you, right? Do you see that, that movement forward and upward by faith? The prophet Samuel was faithful in his old age. Job continued to grow in his submissive trust of his sovereign God as an old man. Daniel was old when he was thrown to the lions for praying to God in Persia. The old age of both Simeon and Anna in the New Testament are emphasized by Luke in his gospel when they see baby Jesus in the temple. They had longed for it, they had prayed for it, and then they saw it, and they worshiped God for this. 
And the Apostle John wrote perhaps all his letters as an aged man, but most certainly uh, the book of Revelation was written late in his life. So we see examples of scripture, godly men and women who continue in faith, enduring to the end and pushing forward. But are all examples in scripture positive like this? Certainly not. We, we last see Lot drunk in a cave, becoming the incestuous father to his daughter's sons. Eli the priest lazily ignores his son's wickedness at the temple and receives God's judgment on them and on him and on the people for this. King Saul grew more and more unfaithful as he got older until he finally committed suicide on the battlefield. David's sin with Bathsheba happens as he is a maturing king. And then much later than that, he arrogantly counts the people for his own vanity against God's will and is responsible as king for the death of thousands of the Israelites. Solomon becomes idolatrous in his old age. Hezekiah should have just died when he first got sick. Because the extra, what, 15 years that the Lord gives him, they don't go well. In fact, most of the kings get they grow worse as they get older. Judas began following Jesus, but fell away. Demas was Paul's ministry assistant, like Timothy and Titus and others, yet he abandoned Paul because he loved this present world. How you finish matters, so never stop following Jesus. Right? There's the, that's the heartbeat of it. Not just for somebody else, but for you. How you finish your life is what I'm talking about. How you finish matters. So never stop following Jesus. Older men and women here in this body, I'll let you decide if that applies to you or not. But are you pursuing perseverance to the end of your life? Or have you shifted into coasting? Like, I can't answer that question for you. It's like, I can look, right? And I can rejoice, and I do. It's like, but you need to answer that, ask yourself and answer that question prayerfully. Like, which is it, right? Is there, is there a movement, or is there like, ah, let me just wait? Because you're, you're old, again, you decide if that fits. Because you're old, are you somehow now exempt from your sinful flesh? Are you, are you walking by the Spirit by default now? Uh, or uh, are you exempt from sacrificial service to your Savior, on the other hand? Like, ah, sin isn't really a problem, and service isn't really a responsibility anymore. That's all past. Is that true? Is that biblical? Now, I fully grant it seasons of life. Sacrificial service of senior saints does not look the same as it does for younger men and women, but there is always ministry to be done. Right? Just like, that's not just for, like, all, like, there's not just like a weightedness of like the young people do everything and old people do nothing, right? Or, or switching that aspect of it. There are just seasons of life and busyness, right? <laughs> so like, we're not going to ask Luke and Scarlett to do a whole lot right now because <laughs> Scarlett's ministry is taking care of Violet, right? She, she's a bee served, not like, well, why isn't she here? Like, why couldn't she prep something for us all? Like, no, right? There are seasons of service, and they, they ebb and flow across our lives, but they ebb and flow and shift, and they adjust in different seasons. But how are you serving? And I know that even from examples from you, you recognize you're not exempt from your sinful flesh. The battle continues through our last breath to victory. Pursue perseverance. Our Lord and Savior Jesus persevered. Right? He knew his mission was not to stay in one town and build a huge following. He knew his mission was to go and to preach. And then there's this shift that happens near the, the middle of the Gospels, toward the end of his life. He's like, I'm here to die in Jerusalem. And the language that's used is that he sets his face like a like flint. He's like, I'm going there. He won't be dissuaded from it, right? His disciples tried to. The crowds would have been attractive. It's like, oh, we could do all this ministry in the north. He said, no, we're going up to Jerusalem because the Son of Man will be betrayed, will be handed over, will be crucified. He will die. He will rise. 
Jesus persevered. He marched there. And his disciples followed behind. And he calls us to follow him and to persevere in following him. And thankfully, he has given us the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who energized him. Have you recognized that? It was not in his own strength that Jesus obeyed his Father's will. It was through the working of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that he then gives to his people to say, follow me, and you are equipped to follow me just as I was equipped to follow my Father's will. We have the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in pursuing perseverance. So what are you aiming at? Are you aiming at anything? Would anyone here say, you know, I really want my family's last memory of me to be seeing me passed out drunk on my bed. That's my goal. What that would just be. I'd love for that to be the last story my children or grandchildren know about me. Anybody? Any takers? There was a uh, there was an obituary that I read. It, things make the course of the internet. Maybe you did too. Someone passed away in, in Kentucky and the, the obituary is just sort of this joking mockery of this man's drunkenness and uh, things that he had given himself to. You start off kind of like, wow, this is a, as far as I know, is a legit obituary, like real. Uh, and you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then you're like, ooh, no, that's not funny at all. Right? Given to drunkenness and carousing, and that's the last memory that his family wants to establish for him. That's how he was known. It's what he gave his life to. That's not funny. That's tragic. Compare that idea with the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders. He told them what he was aiming at in Acts chapter 20. He writes this, or Luke writes this. Paul said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And then decades later, just before his execution in Rome, he wrote some of his final words to his protege, Timothy, his son in the faith, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, by God's grace, we, we can all finish well and never stop following Jesus. That's what Paul is saying, right? I don't want to stop following Jesus. I want to declare Jesus all the way to the end. And then at the end, he's like, I haven't stopped following Jesus. By God's grace, I'm at the end, and I'll be faithful even through death to when I see Jesus. Is that what you long for? How you finish matters, and how you travel affects how you finish. I, I see that in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Admittedly, kind of like other stories that we would read, this story recorded in Genesis 9, it gives us more questions than it does answers. Uh, like, what exactly happened in that tent? Right? You could ask, like, why did Ham go in in the first place? Right? Like, what, what happened in there? Like, what happened when he came out? What did Noah, how did Noah know? Right? A lot of questions about this. Uh, and there is a lot of creative and disturbing speculation by various authors across thousands of years. Like, whatever you might think could have possibly happened, somebody says that that's what happened. Reading into all sorts of different things, um, I'm not going to share that with you. Uh, I'd say ask me after, I just don't want to share it with you. Uh, but I think that we should just accept the text at face value without kind of reading in to try to look for something more heinous than, than just what this is. I think Ham walked into his father's tent, I don't know why, saw his father's drunken, naked shame, and then picked up the garment that Noah had cast off and then took it to his brothers in order to mock or dishonor his father. Like, I don't think it was just kind of like, a, oh, what happened? Oh, I, I saw dad, it was... That was weird. No, I, I think he's intending to shame his father. Right? So he comes back out just like righteous dad. 
yeah, right, take a look at this. This is what's happening in that tent, right? Because then they take that garment, they go backwards. And I mean, sometimes living in a family, you, you see something you didn't mean to see and wished you had never seen. I don't think this was an accidental glimpse and, and cover your eyes. Uh, based on all the responses from Shem and Japheth, from Noah himself, I think it's clear that Ham acted dishonorably. He had a dishonoring reaction to his father's naked shame. Uh, it's good for us to ask, you know, why did he do that? Whatever he did, well, we don't know, but why? Like, why would there be that type of mockery? I think that the biblical answer is clear, if not in this passage, throughout the rest of Scripture. Why does sin happen? Well, sin happens for all of us, and so sin happened for Ham because of the sin in his heart. Like, that's where this came from. You know, our sinful hearts influence our eyes, and that influences our lives. It reveals itself in our lives. There's just always this progression that follows, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But this is sort of what happens as it reveals itself. And it seems that, like, perhaps Ham's son Canaan shared his father's sinful tendencies. That's one of the other big questions of why, when Ham does something... Uh, does, does Noah speak about Canaan, Ham's son, his, Noah's grandson, instead of Ham himself? So I think it's likely that what, what Noah saw in Ham, knowing his son, and understanding this dishonoring reaction that he had, that he sees some of that echoed in Canaan, dishonor, mockery, perhaps the sensuality, some aspect of that, like why is he looking and talking about it? We know that whatever Canaan was like, we know that Canaan's descendants certainly were given over not just to hearts and eyes of sinfulness, but to lives of uh, sensuality or even that kind of debauchery that we talked about earlier. Genesis 9 says that Noah uncovered himself and his nakedness was exposed, right? Just disrobed, I think, is all that we need to think about with that. And one of the closest connections with these words is found in Leviticus chapter 18. It speaks of, and it's not the same type of wording, but it's very close to the words, where it speaks of someone uncovering the nakedness of one of their relatives. In that passage, Moses is writing discreetly about inappropriate sexual relationships, uh, specifically incest and then homosexuality, even bestiality, all of which the text says were being practiced by the Canaanites, Canaanites who were living in the promised land at the time that God was calling his people to go in and occupy it. Apparently, they continued down what I think was a depraved path started by Ham and continued by Canaan. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think that we could also say, out of the overflow of the heart, the eyes look. What your heart is leaning toward or what your heart is already given to determines the direction or the trajectory of your life. And that is revealed then by words and by looks and ultimately by our behavior. And despite our often adamant protests to the contrary, we do not sin by accident. Have you ever hoped to accidentally sin? I remember that nasty festeringness in my heart, especially as a teenager. Like, I hope to act, I can't sin on purpose. Too afraid of my parents, praise God. Too afraid of my reputation and vanity, not praise God. Means of grace, maybe. Sin, restraining sin, how does that work? I don't know. But wanting to sin by accident, may the Lord deliver us from such. But listen carefully to me. And may the Holy Spirit give us all ears to hear this. You cannot pursue sinful pleasures and perseverance in faith at the same time. You can't go in two opposite directions. Right? Be like, I'm going to go north and south simultaneously. No, you're not. We walk in light or we walk in darkness. Right? Consider 1 John. It's he contrasts those. We say we're walking in the light, but... Walk in darkness, right? We're lying. Our lives are dedicated and a trajectory, a direction toward righteousness or toward sin. We love God or we love this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love God and 
money or the treasures of this world. Right? We walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. Right? So often we see these two paths. There's the broad Kate, the broad path to destruction, or there's the narrow path, right? The difficult path toward life. One of two. You don't straddle them and then jump to the right side just at the last minute, right? Where, where we finish, how we finish matters, and how we are living now is pointing us toward a direction of finishing. Now, if you are in Christ... The choice between, should I walk in light? Should I walk in darkness? Should I walk in righteousness? Should I walk in sin? Right? Should I walk by the Spirit? Should I walk by the flesh? Like that decision, that choice has already been made for you. And praise God, if you're in Christ, right, you've been redeemed from all of those things. You know what redeemed means? Right? It means rescued out of slavery. Right? Purchased from it. Given righteousness as if it were my own, like we confess together today. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued from slavery to sin. You've been delivered from darkness into his marvelous light, right? You were snatched off the broad path and placed on the narrow path, right? Like that, that, that heart driven towards sin has been made new. Now you have a heart that says, I want righteousness as God is righteous, we walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And know that the Holy Spirit within you is at war against your sinful heart. Isn't that passage great? It doesn't just say, go fight the flesh. Who's fighting in that passage? Do you remember? The Spirit is fighting in you and for you and with you. That's a glorious truth. Spirit is at work opposing those fleshly tendencies in you. But how you are walking now, young or old or somewhere in between, it determines how you will finish. Just like Ham's actions, I think, determined his own direction and influenced the direction of his descendants, which, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week was not a good direction. Apparently, the seed of the serpent was alive and well even after the flood. But not everyone was given over to sin. Though we see Noah's drunken shame and Ham's dishonoring reaction, and then we see Shem and Japheth's honoring response in verse 23. And these other two sons of Noah, they chose not to follow Ham in his dishonorable sin, but rather took great pains to honor their father. I love that the text is vivid about this, right? They take that garment from Ham, and they put it over their shoulders, and they're, you know, like that awkward walking. Maybe they kind of bump into each other. Who, who gets the door of the, the tent? Like, who pulls the curtain back? And they're kind of walking, and they don't want to step on their dad, uh, but they don't want to see their dad. And so, I, in my mind, they're kind of like looking past the garment, waiting to see his toes. This is just all me. I don't, I don't know why. And then, and then they kind of like throw it, and then they leave, <laughs> right? But they take pains to keep their faces forward, to not look at these type of things. Perhaps we're supposed to connect this with God's gracious action toward Adam and Eve in clothing them? Are they acting in a godly way? Is there there's that type of imagery that we're supposed to see here? But by honoring their father in this way, you know, Shem and Japheth, they honor the Lord. By honoring their father, they honor the Lord. And they fulfill the teaching that we see across Scripture, honor your father and your mother. And why are we to do that? Not just because it says so. We honor our father, we honor our mother so that we can show honor to God, our heavenly father. And if we refuse to honor God-ordained authorities in our lives, we refuse to submit to them even when we don't like it, and obeying commands that we probably don't understand, maybe even don't agree with, if we refuse to do that, how can we say that we are willing to submit to God's authority over our lives? Or will we only follow him when we understand and agree? That's not submission. That's not obedience. I texted Keith at some point this week as I was trying to decide, okay, wait, what the text parameters here? But it's amazing to me that by the providence of God, Sovereign, right? Sovereignty of God? Who believes in the sovereignty of God? Amen. Good. I hope your hands are up. 
Uh, who believes in expository preaching? <laughs> it's amazing to me that by the providence of God, through a committed process of expository preaching, we actually landed on a text related to honoring your father on Father's Day. Did it have to be this text? It's like, okay, all right, Lord. I guess miracles do happen, or maybe this is more like a stopped clock being right at least twice a day. Eventually, it's bound to, bound to happen. Not my idea of a Father's Day text. Normally, I don't even mention it, but here we are. You're kind of like, really? This is your first time here? You're like, is this his idea of a Father's Day text? This is just my idea of the next text that we preach. Uh, but hey, fathers, right? Don't be drunken idiots. Um, children, honor your father and mother. Like, it fits. Fits the day. Praise God. Let's move on. The next point that we see is Noah's curse and blessing in verse 24 to 27. Noah wakes up. He finds out what had happened, what his son had done to him. Again, I think that's that aspect of this mockery and this dishonoring. And he responds strongly. He responds with a curse and with a blessing. Instead of cursing Ham, Noah curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan, and it really isn't clear why. Lots of, lots of different ideas about that. I didn't really land on something that I thought was like, oh yeah, that makes the most sense. However, in God's sovereign plan, we, we later see Canaan's descendants cursed, and not just for their ancestors' sin, but cursed for their own sins. We see God's judgment executed on them by the Israelites, the hand of God's people being executed and being expelled from the promised land. And the, the Israelites are descendants of Shem. So we start to see this filled out. It seems likely that in that judgment, right, God's people leaving Egypt, conquering the Egyptians, which were relatives, descendants of Ham, uh, and then entering into the promised land and expelling them, which were relative, right, the descendants of Canaan, like they would have made aspects of this connection. Look, look you know, this curse is already on them. So maybe we see this curse truly being fulfilled. Maybe that's what Moses is emphasizing here. And then after cursing Canaan, the Lord, the Noah blesses, and you would think, who is he going to bless? Don't look at the text, just guess, right? Curses Canaan, right? Some aspect of Ham. So he's going to bless who? He's going to bless Shem. Does, now look at the text. Does he bless Shem? He, he doesn't. That's not what it says. Then Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So he blesses and praises the Lord, the God whom Shem serves, but Shem is also blessed and honored by this praise of God. And then Japheth is blessed, but his blessing comes through Shem or through Japheth's relationship to Shem. Right? If he's like, Shem will be blessed, God will be blessed, right, in Shem and so Shem will be blessed by God being blessed through that. And Japheth, you'll be blessed through Shem who's blessed through God. Like I'm guessing that's kind of what's happening here is there's these, these tears that are happening. But in all of this, Ham is ignored and Canaan is cursed multiple times. Cursed as the lowest of servants to his brothers. And I think we can actually see that not just playing out immediately, but playing out across, especially the Old Testament, it's going to take a few thousand years for us to be able to see like Ham and Canaan starting to be put into this subservient type of position uh, across human history. And it may, probably isn't exactly what you think, unless you've studied it and probably is what you think. But we'll look at that, Lord willing, a bit more next week as we consider the, this table of nations and all of this dispersing that happens. Because the curse is most certainly not revealed immediately. Noah doesn't speak this curse and then God's like, yep, immediately. Canaan, right? down low. Actually, Canaan is, and Ham's descendants are up high for a really long time. This is another interesting question one of the girls was asking. It's just like, so Noah just like wakes up, finds out, gets upset, and all of a sudden like determines the course of history for his children? Like, wow. Like some have actually used this to be like, yeah, that's exactly how God responds. It's like, you say the right words, or you're the right person, like, you can cast this like a spell, and God's like, oh, all right. Does that sound right? It doesn't sound, I hope it doesn't sound right. God is not, like, words are not automatic. These aren't magic. That's not a spell that Noah is casting. He isn't forcing God to do anything. 
I think this is probably somewhere between a request in prayer, perhaps a statement of prophecy as to what God is going to do. Seeking that from God. And if we think prayer, perhaps prophetic, we're probably pretty close to what is going on, but not just like this angry spell that determines the course of human history. God determines the course of human history. Returning to this idea of pursuing perseverance. We look at Noah, we're reminded of the need for enduring through the finish line and not getting lazy in our struggle against our sinful flesh. Then Ham and Shem and Japheth, they remind us that our choices along the way reveal our direction and reveal our future. Thank God for repentance and gracious forgiveness. That's the other aspects of the story, right? Like sometimes people like unexpectedly succeed and other times people unexpectedly fail. And sometimes people that you think are just nosediving in failure, right, are snatched from destruction by the mercy of God, granted repentance and forgiveness and move up. Right? Is, I think it's Manasseh. Manasseh is the worst of the kings. It's like, that's it's like, let the judgment fall. And then you find out he repented and God forgave him. You're like, that is remarkable. Right? Judas nosedives in rebellion and blasphemy against Jesus. So does Peter. But the Lord restored him. Right? Demas. Mark. But then back up. We talked about this in one of, there's another passage, maybe in, I think it was, we were thinking about the closing people uh, in our time through Colossians, those different aspects of mentioning. So it's like, whatever that path is that you're on, like as it's identified to you, whether you're at the end and you're like, man, I need to, to, to determine what is the ministry the Spirit is equipping me to. And it's not just like work physically, right? If, if it's like, I don't know what to do, then pray. Prayer is not the least that you can do. Prayer is the most that you can do. Then we all can pray. And so, you know, my senior brothers and sisters, right? It's like, again, if you're like, I'm old, I can't do much. All I can do is pray. Oh. All? All any of us can do is pray. May God work through the prayers of his people. And there's far more, and you, you know you're, you're serving faithfully, I but God grants repentance, right? And God grants a gracious forgiveness. And so whenever we identify, I'm heading in the wrong direction, whether it's at the beginning, whether it's in the, what you think is the middle, whether it's what you think is the end, like, man, I'm, I'm off path. That's, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And be glorified in us and through us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Another song, I don't remember if we sang, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. What about Jesus? It's always the question we want to ask, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who perfectly personified perseverance. He knew his mission, he knew his goal, and he refused to be distracted from it. Jesus is the success where all of us and everyone else is a failure in some way, shape, or form. Instead of being distracted, Jesus endured to the end. Jesus persevered to the completion of his mission, even when that completion involved his death on the cross being forsaken by his father. Punished for sins that he didn't commit, willingly being punished for sins that he didn't commit. Right? The the worst, the worst path that could be followed, Jesus followed and continued. That's the one that we worship. That's the one that we serve. This one who's dwelling within us by his spirit, who's called us to himself. And like Shem and Japheth, Jesus honored his earthly parents, submitting to them without a hint of sin, even as a young man. And even more than that, in all things, at all times, Jesus delighted to please his heavenly father. 
Once he even said, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Are you willing to say that about your relationship with God? Anybody willing to, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Are you willing to claim that? I'm not willing to claim that. But God the Father testified to that. God the Father said Jesus was right. This one, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What does that mean? That means, yes, he does always do what is pleasing to me. Right? The perfect relationship between father and son from eternity, seen even as Jesus comes to this earth and dwells among sinners like us. Now, sadly, shameful public failures are a normal part of the daily news cycle. And as Christians, we should neither delight in nor be discouraged by these failures. Not discouraged to the point of giving up. We should take warning. We should consider ourselves. We should also look at the lives of faithful believers, not as idols, but as examples. Right? Be warned by the failures of others and, and be encouraged by the success that the Lord works through others. It, isn't that exactly what Hebrews 11 is all about? Like, let me show you. Right? Let's consider others who have been tried in their faith. And so as we consider our mission, our, our goal, persevering to the end, our goal of continuing to walk in faith and in repentance, not in the past, but in the present and into the future, continuing to believe, continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to walk in repentance before God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we do that, we must consider Jesus, not Noah, not Peter, not Paul. We must consider Jesus. And that isn't some novel idea I just came up with. Guys, I figured it out if we would just look at Jesus. It's like, you're like, what? Never even thought about that before. No, of course not. The, the book of Hebrews is all about perseverance. Repeated calls to continuing and enduring and persevering. And in one sense, this climax is not in chapter 11, but, but rises with chapter 11, these encouraging examples of faith, and gets us to chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author gets to his conclusion, just like I'm getting to my conclusion, and says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder, beginner, and completer, the founder and perfecter of our faith, beginning and end, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, consider him. Consider Jesus, him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And it's not just endure like he endured. Right? It's endure through the power of him who endured. You must persevere to the end. You must. And you can. And you will. And the only way to pursue perseverance is by keeping our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus. To be reminded of his sinless perfection and his sacrifice on the cross for your sins and his future return. Keep those things in mind, even as we come to the Lord's table together. Because the table speaks all of that to us. Right? The broken body, he had no sin in his humanity. It's the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup together as God's people, we proclaim the Lord's death for how long? 
until he comes. It's a, we're, we're not enduring blindly. We're not persevering to nothing. Neither was Jesus. He knew the joy that was set before him. And so he ran toward it. Jesus is the joy that is set before you. So run toward Jesus. And at this table, let, let's taste that good news. Right? Touch it with our hands. Consume it into ourselves. Let's remind each other of the gospel. And may the table be a means of worship. May the table be a means from God for us of perseverance. If you are aiming in the wrong direction, then repent and come to the table. If you're aiming in the right direction, rejoice, repent of any pride that came from that, and come to the table. If you are not in Christ, if you don't care, I don't care how I'm, where I'm aimed at, I don't care where I'm going. That's not the heart of someone who is in Christ. So if you are not in Christ, uh, then the table's not for you, right? We, we come to, to worship in humility and joy. If you don't want to worship Jesus, then this isn't for you. But I warn you of your sin, the, the trajectory that your life is on in that type of sinful rebellion against God. Don't continue in that. But also don't, don't come forward in, in hypocrisy to partake of something that means nothing to you. Turn from your sin Trust in Jesus and come worship with us at the table. In a moment, the deacons will dismiss. Uh, Jeremy, I think, will come forward to lead us in serving the table. We'll, we'll hand those out. If you're not a member of Risen King, you're still welcome to come if you're a follower of Jesus. We, uh, we call all to come who love and have trusted in Jesus to come to the table. So if that's you, you are welcome even if you're not a member here. Uh, we'll come, we'll serve, you'll take the elements, we'll return to our seats, uh, and then we'll partake together after everyone is received, just so you kind of know uh, traffic order. I think everybody comes down the middle, right, out to the sides. We've got a few uh, visitors with us today. I want you to know what to expect practically by that way. But let's give thanks for uh, the Lord, for the table, and I'll turn it over to Jeremy. Father, thank you for sending your son to be the propitiation for our sins, the covering that we need. Thank you for his perfect life, for his death on the cross in our place. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his return. May all these things fill our hearts with humility and gratitude and, and worship for Jesus as we come to the table. May you be glorified. May we be strengthened to endure. May we, may we taste and see the gospel taste and see that you truly are good. Amen.